This podcast is brought to you by DNA Ticks, the genetic ecosystem. The genetics industry is coming to the blockchain. For the first time ever, users can test, store, and transfer their DNA safely and anonymously. DNA Ticks is transforming the way we map, store, and use DNA. The DNA Ticks token sale has just begun. Register now to get early access to the new genetics ecosystem. DNAtix.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This podcast is brought to you by DNAtix the genetic ecosystem. The genetics industry is coming to the blockchain. For the first time ever, users can test, store, and transfer their DNA safely and anonymously. DNAtix is transforming the way we map, store, and use DNA. The DNAtix token sale has just begun. Register now to get early access to the new genetics ecosystem. DNAtix.com. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest right now is Matt Engel. PhD, the founder and CEO of a company called Paradromics, P-A-R-A-D-R-O-M-I-C-S. That's the website.com. Matt, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, uh, let's just jump right in. Tell me about Paradromics. What's the premise of the company? So Paradromics is building uh, what could be considered a modem for the brain. If you think about a lot of uh, situations in human health where, let's say, someone becomes blind or deaf or paralyzed, uh, one way of looking at those conditions in a kind of unified way is to say that they've been cut off from the world. Um, they've sort of uh, lost some some interface with the outside world, whether it's uh, sensory or it's motor. And Paradromics as a company, our interest is for people who become cut off from the world in, in some way um, through injury or illness, is there a way that we can reconnect them uh, directly through a digital interface to their brain? So, for instance, uh, if someone is paralyzed, could they move uh, robotic limbs by thinking? Or if someone has become blind, could they mm. receive uh, visual input through a camera connected to their brain? So what, and, uh, what mechanism? So as of right now, what's the, um, the state of the art for you know, brain-computer interfaces? And um, what are you looking at doing? Yeah, so the state of the art, in my opinion, in brain-computer interfaces is what's called the Utah Array, which is currently being sold by BlackRock Microsystems and has been deployed in a number of clinical trials, uh, uh, collectively often referred to as the BrainGate program. And uh, right now, someone who is paralyzed can receive a brain implant with 100 electrodes in their motor cortex, and they can learn to control either a relatively simple robotic arm or they can learn to control a mouse on a computer screen to click out messages. Uh, mm. It's really impressive if you uh, if you go online and Google BrainGate and look for some videos. You can see examples of people who are quadriplegic and are communicating or moving uh, using these Utah arrays. Mm. And that's right. Yes, in the in the simplest sense, in what Paradromics is doing is we're looking at building an interface that has on the order of, let's say, 50 to 100 times higher data rate per unit area of cortex. So we're building brain implants that are uh, 
higher data rate versions of the Utah array. And we look so, at, oh, go ahead. You know, I know that obviously the, you know, the people that are in this state are, you know, unfortunately they're used to, uh, you know, having tubes stuck in them and things like that, but the implant itself looks, you know, kind of invasive. Are you looking to make it um, less invasive or you're focused right now just on increase, increasing the data rate so well, that the, uh, the implant doesn't get any more invasive, but it still works better? In some ways, we're looking at making the uh, the implant a little bit less intrusive um, we're, so that if our the implant we're designing would be uh, completely wireless, so you wouldn't be able to see if someone had the implant, which is a a big thing for people. Um, they don't necessarily want something sticking out of their head that everyone can see. Um, right. Making it wireless also can reduce the risk of infection uh, through the skin. But fundamentally, uh, the device that we're designing still requires brain surgery, so you would still consider it invasive. Mm. So right now, what's what's a metric? How much data and how fast can the data go back and forth? And how much of the cortex area is plugged into the device right now? Yeah, so the Utah Array is a four millimeter by four millimeter device, and it has a hundred probes. And the data rate um, is a little bit variable, but you would say that uh, you know a single neuron has a data rate that's maybe comparable to like an old timey telegraph operator, um, far less than a hundred hertz, uh, far less than a hundred bits per second. Um, yeah. But it depends on ex uh, that the exact details depend from experiment and implantation to implantation. But you can roughly think of a single neuron being uh, kind of a, te a telegraph operator typing out messages at you know a few beats a second, and uh, a Utah array with a hundred electrodes might record from approximately a hundred neurons. Um, so if you want to if you want to kind of think about where the data rate is today, it's significantly less than a fifty six kilobits per second modem that you used uh, for dial-up access in the 90s. Hmm. So, and, uh, yeah, I guess you wouldn't want to go and have to recruit more and more neurons because, you know, then the, the implant would have to be more invasive. Um, but is there a fundamental limit that you're, you know, like with the number of neurons that you currently connect to, are you close to the capacity of them or are you not even close at all? Well, um, we're, from, our, from our standpoint, the more neurons that you can record from, the better. Um, but you want, it's not just about total number of neurons, but also it's about the number of neurons you can get in a given area of the brain because, uh, function is localized in the brain. So there's a certain area of your brain that deals with motor. There's a certain area that deals with speech and, um, you, you could cover the entire brain with electrodes, but then, uh, only a, only a portion of those would have to do with any particular application. So we're really interested in how do you record from the largest number of neurons in a given area uh, in order to restore uh, function related to that area. And so we're interested in developing uh, what we have. We use uh, microwire-based uh, recording techniques. So these wires are themselves about a fifth the size of a human hair. And they can be in, uh, they can be inserted in high density, non-invasively into brain tissue, um, and therefore, in a given area, in a given area of brain, uh, you can get a lot of electrodes in, and you can record from a lot of neurons while doing minimal damage. Okay. And what capabilities are there right now for these interfaces, and which capabilities would come online if you're able to increase the uh, the speed, as you said? Yeah. So uh, right now, the capabilities are far below a 56 kilobits per second modem. 
And our goal is to lead to capabilities that are comparable to like first generation broadband, something like 100 megabits per second. Hmm. But, you know, what would that I mean, uh, what would that do? Is there like a tremendous lag right now when people use the system yeah. and it's frustrating or are there are certain well, things that they just literally can't do that they could do with a faster connection? Well, so, for instance, just um, control uh, high resolution control of prosthetics. Um, so if you watch some of the BrainGate videos, you can see what 100 electrodes can afford you today. And it's really impressive. I mean, it's, re it's really impressive that that's happening today and that um, people can, you know, bring a drink to their mouth and, and uh, begin to help themselves through the use of a brain machine interface. But at the same time, you would you'd probably look at it and say, that's not as that's not the kind of precision that I would want. Uh, that doesn't really approximate the control that I have of my own limbs. And so um, right. it's clear that there's a direct relationship between the amount of data that you can put through that interface and the uh, precision of control that you can have. And it, the same would be true for sensory prosthetics as well. If you were looking at um, a, a visual prosthetic, you know, think about how many pixels how many pixels would you want it with your artificial retina? Um, you want the higher data rate, the higher performance. Yeah, you want as many as possible. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so one of, you know, just a little bit more abstractly, I kind of, I, I like to think about uh, trends in brain machine interfacing and in the same way as like trends in uh, home broadband. If you think about, you know, the kinds of things that you're able to do on the internet, in the early 90s, and then in the late 90s, and then in the 2000s, um, there was this explosion of different applications and the way that people use the internet that accompanied just our ability to get data over the pipes. You know, for instance, um, I think Netflix was founded in 1997, um, and at the time it was a company that like sent you DVDs. And it was only about right. 10 years later when broadband became ubiquitous that Netflix turned into the company that it is now. And now uh, it's the largest user of internet bandwidth uh, in the United States. Wow. So just changing, huh. you know, changing broad, broad, home broadband connectivity changed the way that people use the internet. It changed the types of applications that were feasible. I think the same thing's going to happen in brain machine interfacing. Um, the more bandwidth that you bring, the more interesting applications will become possible. Well, I guess not only that, um, you know, this would be used for people that, um, you know, let's say are paralyzed, but it would definitely probably lead to situations where someone's not paralyzed, but they want to interact with computers using their brain. Yeah, I, I imagine that there will be uh, an expansion of applications, starting with people who are severely disabled and then people who are, let's say, suffering from some sort of disability or neuropsychiatric illness that would be interested in a brain implant. And then at a point where perhaps millions of people have received medical devices um, that are high bandwidth brain implants, I think then society may come around and start looking at, you know, would it be acceptable to us to have uh, brain implants for non-medical purposes? Now, admittedly, I personally think that that's quite far away, but we could see how there could be a path to that. Hmm. Makes sense. So what's involved in increasing the uh, transmission data rate, you know, without giving away, obviously, your secret sauce, but uh, what are some of the things that you have to overcome or look at in order to make it work? Uh, no, I mean, in the case of paradromics, I, I don't really think there's any secret sauce. From our standpoint, it's just 
how many neurons can you record and how many neurons can you stimulate? And at the moment, the most reliable way to record and stimulate neurons at the single neuron scale uh, with high temporal resolution is through direct electrical recording. And so then the question is about how many, um, how many electrode sites can you get into a given area or a given volume of cortex uh, without disrupting that brain area and in a way that will last for a very long time. And when we looked at the technological landscape, what we saw was that um, these microwires that we're using were really promising candidate because they can last for a very long time. They're extremely simple. So their failure modes have been uh, well described. And for us, it's all about how many microwires can you put into a given area, which means making them, making them smaller, making them less invasive, improving insertion techniques. It's all just about how many how many wires you can put in uh, while preserving the uh, integrity and health of the tissue that you're recording from. And uh, yeah, I think that's the game. Okay. So uh, where are you at with the process? What have you been able to accomplish so far? Or is it, uh, you know, is it still like a futuristic thing that you, you're not there yet? Oh, no, I, th I would say it's a very real thing. Um, so we've just finished our first uh, neural recording system, which is... Uh, being used for animal experiments. We call it the Argo system. It supports up to 65,000 channels, um, and one channel can record from multiple neurons. And uh, we really kind of just unwrapped this thing. Um, the, all of the hardware is done, and now we are testing it in some uh, animal experiments, uh, collecting some preclinical data, and we're very excited to, uh, you know, we should be coming out with an announcement in, let's say, uh, the next couple of months about some of our initial results. What are the results that you're looking for? You know, are there any specifics that you're hoping for? We're looking to collect some very large-scale recordings and to be able to show uh, some of the interesting things that happen when you record from very large numbers of cells. Yeah, what do you think would happen um, if you're able to record X percent of all the neurons? I don't know what that percentage may be, but... Is there a certain point where you can record less than all the neurons in a brain yet have as much functionality as you want? I think that, yeah, I think that there is uh, a large amount of redundancy in the brain. And I think that we can think about recording from certain brain areas in a statistical way where you don't necessarily have to record every neuron's activity to understand the behavior of that system. Um, it is not known today where that trade-off occurs, what percentage that occurs at. But I think as we start building these really large-scale interfaces, we'll start to get some empirical data about those inflection points. Um, another really interesting thing that happens when you start collecting a lot more data is that I think a lot of people um, are of the misunderstanding that collecting more data will make the analysis more difficult or there will be some sort of big data problem. But actually, the more data you collect, the more data points you have, the simpler the models that you can use to describe that system. Um, it's almost always the case that having more and better data makes your analysis easier rather than harder. Uh, so that's another thing that we're very interested in looking at is, um, you know, what's what rather than coming up with the most complicated models that we could use to uh, decode brain data, looking at what are the simplest models that we can use that would still be very performant. Well, how, um, I know it's a very generic question, but is the brain organized in such a way that you think that it's going to be, again, super redundant and it's going to have a pretty simple model that's just um, 
copied over and over and over in the brain in certain areas? Um, I think it'll be very brain area. I think it'll be very brain area specific. Um, some areas we already know a lot about how these areas are organized, particularly um, sensory areas. Um, we have a, there have been a lot of experiments in animals where we've been able to deliver precise visual or auditory or olfactory stimuli and then look and see what the first levels of the what the first stages within brain processing are doing uh, while we present that data. There are a lot of areas of the brain that are really well organized. There are other areas of the brain that are not well organized that occur sort of much deeper in the stack. And um, yeah, I think that there'll be, I think it'll be a different, a slightly different answer for different areas of the brain. And I guess, you know, like I, I, I talked to tons of, tons of companies that use AI and machine learning. I would guess that you probably want to use machine learning to accomplish some of these objectives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we're looking at questions like uh, how many neurons do you need to record from in a large population to get the you know, to get 80% of the effect of recording the whole network. Um, you know, these are very statistical questions. And uh, a lot of the approaches that you would use would be in the area of like statistical machine learning. Yeah, I figured you'd need that, yeah. Hmm. Um, any insights into how the brain works from your existing research? Things that surprised you that maybe, you know, you didn't know before you started on it? Um, I would say that at the moment, we've been really focused on building out hardware and building out capabilities. And we haven't been as focused on collecting, you know, pure brain data. Uh, I think that some of that stuff will come in in the next couple of months as we're as we're pulling down more and more data and starting to look at it more carefully. Okay. Um, so, would uh, how long do you think it's going to be before you're able to increase the transmission rate from, you know, brain to computer? What's your timeline, and you know, what kind of milestones do you have? Yeah, our goal is to have a completely implantable device. Uh, by the end of 2020, and we'd be seeking to um, get what's called an investigational device exemption so that we could begin clinical trials as early as 2021. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of where we are in our timeline. Yeah, that's not long. Yeah, I, I would think... Be, that, uh, okay. Oh, no, you go ahead. Oh, wait, what would be, um, you know, so that's the timeline for a, an implantable device, which would be a great step forward. <clears throat> Any... Um, I guess moonshots you have and what you're doing. What would be an amazing result, and uh, do you, when do you think it might be possible? Like, what would be amazing to you if you work with I, super successful? I think what I'm most excited about, um, I think the applications in, let's say, uh, in prosthetics for people who are quadriplegic or sensory prosthetics. Um, I think those are pretty straightforward, and everyone would look at that and and see on its face that um, that's going to happen. I think something that's less appreciated is that when high bandwidth bidirectional interfaces become available, um, I think that we can start considering them for applications in like neuropsychiatric illness and uh, correcting correcting things that right now are very poorly addressed with uh, pharmaceuticals. So something that I'd be really, really excited about would be um, after these brain implants have been shown to be safe in a variety of different applications, looking to see, um, could we use them to address things like chronic depression or schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder? And I think the answer is going to be yes. I think that um, these, types of, these types of diseases will have uh, electrophysiological signatures um, that you can detect. And then in the end, the brain runs on uh, 
electrical impulses, uh, neurons signaling to each other with electrical impulses. And so if you have a device that can directly uh, interface with the brain at an electrical level, then you can uh, directly correct sort of aberrations uh, that occur in the brain. And I, yeah, I see a lot of possibilities for brain implants to replace sort of um, non-specific and sort of high side effect pharmaceuticals in the next, let's say, 20 to 30 years. And how fast does the brain communicate with, you know, your own body? You, would we ever be able to approach those speeds where you could have um, control so fine and so fast that it's just like uh, your, your brain would be, would be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, modern microelectronics are faster than your brain. Your brain is actually pretty slow. If you, uh, a single neuron can resolve timing differences within about one millisecond. But if you think about it, um, you know, your gigahertz processor has done a million cycles within one millisecond. Um, so actually, I think that the once you can interface uh, digital electronics to the brain, um, digital electronics are already much faster than your own brain. So you can potentially, within a single cycle of you know, one neuron, a computer can already have done a lot of calculations. Do you think that has good or bad implications, or what does that uh, what does that mean? Oh, I think it future? has. I think it has great implications because I think it means that um, in an amount of time that's imperceptible to you, a computer can already have uh, made a calculation and you know fed back data, whether it's to allow, let's say, better control of a prosthetic, or it's to you know interrupt a seizure, or to uh, correct for some you know, problematic pattern of activity associated with obsessive compulsive disorder or something like that. The great thing is, is that the, uh, the you're not, you're not time limited um, in the stuff that happens outside of your brain and feeds back. Um, computers are very fast relative to you. Are you focused on um, how the senses interact with the brain? You know, the eyes, the nose, you know, the tongue touch, because that seems that the you know those are the main gates through which the brain experiences the world. Yeah, I mean we um, we think about those things, but we're largely you know we're largely interested in the way that we can get data in and out of the brain per se, uh, just through electrical interfaces. And then um, we see you know whether we whether we plug that into a camera or to a microphone or to a robotic arm, you know we see a lot of the challenges just having to do with how do you provide a data interface to the brain? Like, how do you build that modem? And that's where most of our time is spent. Do you get any, I mean, you must be getting knowledge on, on um, you know, what's going on in the brain. I mean, are you able to, you know, I guess it's kind of funny to say, but, you know, read, read someone's mind, read what's going on in their brain because you're interfacing with it. Well, it's, it's interesting if I, I'm not, not speaking of our own work now, but if I think of, um, you know, work done by, Robert Knight's group at UC Berkeley or Eddie Chang's group at UCSF, um, they've both been very interested in using electrical arrays in the brain to uh, decode from speech areas. And there's a lot of interesting evidence that um, it's possible to decode what someone is thinking when they're thinking in a verbal way, uh, just based on recordings in the brain. So yeah, we, I mean, the scientific community is learning a lot about mind reading, if you will. Hmm. Um, yeah, because I guess if you think about it, the brain is in this dark, 
you know, liquid filled jar and it interfaces with the world through, you know, the senses, eyes, ears, nose, et cetera. But, you know, it's weird that the brain really is not directly in contact with any outside stimuli. So if you get good enough at this interface, um, you know, this modem, as you call it, and it's fast enough and it can, it would, it would just be odd. I mean, you know, I guess I imagine a, a scenario where just the brain itself, you could query a brain and find out stuff about it or, uh, I guess, the, you know, the brain in the jar, jarring sample at some point, it could, yeah. um, I don't know what it could do, but just, it just comes to mind. Admittedly, it's, yeah, it's a little bit unsettling to think about, uh, to think about your brain in a jar. Um, but I mean, in some ways it's kind of, kind of meshes what we already think about the brain with respect to the body. Like if, um, you know, if you had your arm cut off, or if you had your leg cut off, or if you became paralyzed, you'd, you'd, have, still have a strong sense that you you are you. Uh, nothing ha- you haven't been diminished in any way. Not, no one has taken anything away from you. Um, if you um, and at the same time, you know, a lot of us have had the experience of having uh, grandparents or people that we know who are older whose minds uh, start to degrade, whether due to Alzheimer's or some other kind of neurodegenerative disease. And at a certain point, you have a sense that it, you know. It looks she looks like grandma, but she's not really grandma anymore. Like she's kind of already passed on. Um, you know, some something has been lost there. Um, I think we already have a like deep sense that the brain is really kind of the seat of our personhood, and that um, you know you can lose your vision, you can lose your sight, or you can lose your hearing, you can lose your ability to move. But in some sense, the you know the seat of your personhood and the, the thing that kind of defines you is your brain. Well, that's true. So, yeah, it is. Um, you know, this is kind of a, this is a really crazy question, but any insights into the nature of um, consciousness yourself from your work, or does it, you know, does it make you think about that at all? Or I would say that uh, consciousness, uh, insofar as we've we've even been able to define it, remains a mystery uh, to neuroscientists today. And I think even the kinds of interfaces that paradromics is looking at right now probably wouldn't shine a great light into that. I mean, we're actually, we're kind of, we're interested in looking right now, poking around the periphery of the brain, looking at the parts of the brain that interface with the outside world, and mainly reestablishing connections and going into uh, specific areas of the brain that are uh, problematic and then kind of course correcting. But we're, you know, we don't have any grand designs to um, say like a- answer the consciousness question or to... Uh, tap into some of those other uh, deeper areas of the brain. I think that that's, um, that's still, that's not on our timeline. That's not on our pathway, let's say. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Would it, um, are there companies that are focusing on just the um, one sense? You know, let's say, um, what if you just focused on how the brain produces visual stimuli, just, you know, and looked at the optical nerve and, and, uh, you know, put a device that affects all the neurons that, that deal with the optical system oh, yeah. of the brain. There, there, are absolutely, there are companies today that are developing artificial retinas. Um, there are certain diseases that cause parts of the retina to degrade, the photoreceptors to degrade, but leave behind uh, other cells within the retina. And so there are a lot of companies right now that are looking at ways to build devices that could sit on the retina and have a camera and have an electrical interface so that it could take pictures and then stimulate the retina to send signals down the optic nerve to the brain. There are other companies that are looking at uh, interfaces directly to the visual cortex that would play video directly into the visual cortex. And a lot is known 
a lot is known about the uh, processing pipeline for, for uh, visual information in the brain. So there are already a lot of research groups and companies that are looking at how to do that. Mm, okay, very good. And it's interesting, just to so, give you an example, um, there's, an, there's uh, a map in your visual cortex, there's a map that's called the retinotopic map. And it's such that um, the XY coordinates along your brain actually correspond to the same XY coordinates on the visual field. There's this you know, mapping of the actual image through the visual scene all the way into your visual cortex, such that if you just put down an array, a grid of wires and stimulate it in the pattern, that would be essentially the same pattern that would pop up on someone's mind's eye. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Huh. Actually, a lot, a lot is known about uh, the visual system. Do, do people, well, I guess I, I won't ask you too much about it, but does that mean that people, when they look, are they like rastering across the field of view, you know, across and down, across and down, across and down, or do they give yeah, any I mean, insights into how people process something visually? At the moment, the current interfaces with the visual system are relatively crude. You can think of it as kind of like they call it like a scoreboard approach where you essentially you've tried to assemble a pattern of dots together to create a shape. Um, but it's not it's I wouldn't say that it's approaching um, what we would consider to be like high acuity vision. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, subtleties in that field that are being worked out. And uh, particularly, I would say one one issue, again, is that um, just the accuracy and the resolution of stimulation can be an issue. Hmm. Okay, got it. So, uh, yeah, last question. You know, it's great the work that you're doing. I mean, it's super important for the people that, you know, need the help and, you know, they're paralyzed, they can't move. What are uh, some resources for people that have questions or are interested in talking to you about collaboration or, you know, finding out about what you do? Well, um, we're, you know, we're currently, we're currently not in a stage where we're, you know, reaching out to people um, you know, with medical conditions. We're, we're, we're far from that. We're, we haven't even begun our clinical trials yet. In terms of uh, partnerships uh, with organizations, if someone would be interested, they could reach us at uh, info at paradromics.com or they could uh, you know, go to the webpage and uh, we have a lot of information on the webpage. Okay, that's great. Well, Matt, I, I appreciate you coming and you're working on a really super important field of study. And, uh, you know, thank you again for all the questions and answers. Yeah, thank you very much for your interest. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.